In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Lord is bleeding, as Father Sean said. Our Lord is bleeding. His most sacred heart has been pierced, and it has been opened. And his most precious blood is flowing out in abundance. But Christ is not just bleeding from his sacred veins and his most holy pores. His mystical body, the Roman Catholic Church, is also enduring her own hemorrhaging. A French priest and a church historian once made the following observation, and it's true. He said, it is a law that the church cannot take a step forward but at the cost of the life of her children. The priest then added, to establish her rights, the church must let her blood flow in streams. Her spouse, Jesus Christ, has purchased the church with his blood. And the church much purchased his grace at a similar cost, unquote. Our dearest Lord did state in the Holy Gospel that no servant was greater than his master. If the God-man, Jesus Christ, laid down his life on the Holy Cross to bring about the work of redemption, then the members of his Holy Church must mortify themselves or even die to bring down the fruits of redemption from the tree of the cross. If the Master was persecuted, if the Son of God and Son of Mary shed his blood from his own sacred veins, it only seems proper that his servants, his disciples, the members of his body, would also have their own discharge of blood. Although certainly a high price to pay, such bloodletting does purify the world. It calls down divine mercy in abundance. Hence we have that most famous motto, the blood of Christians, the blood of martyrs, is the seed of future Christians. You know, the first socialist and atheistic revolution was not in Russia, but rather in Mexico. Not only were socialist members, or rather measures put in place, like the seizure of private properties and the nationalization of industry, but also the direct attack against the only rival to the revolution, namely the Roman Catholic Church. A faithful Catholic from Mexico during this time of persecution and war stated the following, we are going to perish. We will not see victory. But Mexico needs all this blood for her purification. Christ will receive the homage which is due to him. Again, as that French priest stated, it is a law. It is a law of the church that she cannot take a step forward but at the cost of the life of her children. The church's blood must flow. You know, our Blessed Mother had made an appearance to St. Juan Diego in Mexico in the year 1531. Her visitation along with that miraculous tilma 
that miraculous shirt of the visionary caused the conversion of millions of natives to the Catholic faith. From being a pagan land where human sacrifice was practiced by the Aztecs, the devil reigned. Mexico became a place where soon the unbloody sacrifice of the Holy Mass would be offered and Christ would reign as king and Mary as his queen. The devil was not pleased with his exile from Mexico, and so he came back to this land with seven other demons to, to topple the reign of Christ in his holy church. Now, the leaders of this Mexican revolution I mentioned in the early part of the 20th century were socialists, they were atheists, they were masons, and they were rabidly, rabidly anti-Catholic. They seized Catholic churches and made them into Masonic lodges. They suppressed religious orders. They closed down monasteries. They confiscated religious items, properties, and institutions. In addition, they tried to force priests to swear an oath to follow the new and ungodly constitution of Mexico, seeking to indoctrinate the youth. With the mind of this revolution, all Catholic schools were shut down. All Mexican children were forced to attend the government schools with classes on atheism, evolution, and sex education being mandatory. Furthermore, Protestant missionaries were invited into the country purposely to open up their own churches in order to weaken the Catholicism of the people. And finally, the socialist government would go so far as to establish a new Church of Mexico, while the church, the true church, would have to go hidden underground. Some leaders of the revolution included a governor named Tomas Canabal, who handed out business cards with the phrase, personal enemy of God, in bold lettering. This same leader, Mr. Canabal, also named his three sons, Lenin, Lucifer, and Satan. When the infamous Mexican president, Plutarca Elias Calles, took office, he announced that he had, quote, a personal hatred for Jesus Christ. The wrath of these revolutionary men was great. They burned countless Catholic churches and gunned down those Catholics who sought to put out the fires. They violated consecrated virgins and nuns. They desecrated the sanctuary. They destroyed statues. They used consecrated chalices for beer mugs. They cut off priests' hands in order that they could not offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And yes, the revolutionary men executed any and all who would resist change. But all this time, as many of you know, simple peasants, Catholic men who loved their faith, their families, their farms, and their little villages began to rise up. The revolutionaries were making war on God and making war on his one true church, which made armed conflict both just and good. Using machetes, farming instruments, even a small amount of guns, these men fought back, and they began a Catholic 
counter-revolution against a well-armed, U.S.-backed, and funded socialist government. The motto of these Catholic men, the cry that often came forth from their lips, even when standing before a firing squad, was Viva Cristo Rey, long live Christ the King. So often was this cry heard that the revolutionary soldiers disdainfully called these men the Cristores, the Cristeros. Though their churches were closed and most of their priests were off in exile, these Catholic men consecrated themselves to the sacred heart of Jesus. They recited the Holy Rosary. They recited acts of contrition before going into battle. The leaders of this Catholic counter-revolutionary were ordinary people. They were farmers, businessmen, pharmacists, and a few priests. The Catholics of Mexico suffered greatly during the 1920s and 1930s, but they witnessed with their blood. One man, while being hung in execution, managed to loosen the noose around his neck and cried out, Viva Cristo Rey! Another Catholic man was told out that if he cried out, Long live Caes in the revolution, he would be saved from death. Without flinching, the man shouted, Viva Cristo Rey! And in punishment, had his tongue immediately cut out. But in defiance, the man used his finger and pointed to the heights to witness to Christ, the universal king of all, before being shot. And of course, there was the great example, as many of you might know, of that 14-year-old boy, Cristeros, named Blessed Jose Luis Sanchez de Rio. Blessed Jose once told his mother, Mom, in order to go to heaven, we have to go to war. This teenager would act as a flag bearer in the army of Christ, and during one battle, a Cristeros general lost his horse and was in danger of capture. Jose Luis immediately told the general to take his horse in order to flee and to fight again, to avoid capture. The general, of course, resisted, but Jose was insistent until the general took off to fight again another day. But Jose Luis was captured and incarcerated. He was brought to a church that had been turned to a jail. And as people passed by, they could hear this 14-year-old boy reciting the Holy Rosary, and singing songs to the Virgin de Guadalupe. The church not only acted as a jail, but also as a chicken coop for expensive fighting roosters owned by a Masonic governor. Jose cried out, the house of God is not a barnyard, and he quickly killed every one of those chickens. The official was enraged and ordered that the boy be killed. And so soldiers escorted Jose Luis before a firing squad. And as they led him, the soldiers began to strike him with their machetes. Furthermore, they chopped off the soles of his feet. Witnesses said that the stones where Jose had trodden were soaked with his own blood. Although weak and in great pain, little Jose was resolved to embrace martyrdom. And when they got to that place of execution, the soldiers sought to tempt the youngster, saying that if he said, death to Christ the king, he would be spared. Jose's response was resounding, viva Cristo Rey. At this point, the soldiers fired, 
that before he breathed his last, he took his own finger, used it as a pen, got blood from himself, used it as ink, and made the sign of the cross next to his body. But despite all these stories of martyrdom, the Cristeros begin to win battle after battle until they controlled 75% of Mexican territory. That is, until the socialist Masonic government begged for terms of peace. Bishops, even the Pope himself, were involved in negotiations with the Mexican state. Peace and amnesty for all was agreed to, but these devils in the government were liars, just like their father. And as soon as they were able, they tracked down and killed 6,000 Cristeros and put them to death. It is a law, a law that the church cannot take a step forward, but at the cost of the life of her children. The blood of martyrs is the seed of future Christians. Now, over the last few years, the Catholic Church within the United States, has been singled out. Singled out and attacked by the government. This includes the closing down of Catholic orphanages because of their refusal to submit to unjust policies that place young orphans into the abusive care of same-gender couples. Most recently, Holy Church has had to endure trials, as we know, connected with the so-called HHS mandate coming forth from the president and that nominal Catholic Kathleen Sibelius, the head of the Health and Human Services Department. This unjust command, this unjust mandate, will force Catholic institutions to facilitate and to fund sinful things and practices such as abortion-causing drugs, direct sterilizations, and contraceptives. And no matter what you hear in recent news reports, the government supposedly compromising, it's a shell game. This human mandate, this unjust order, is a direct attack against the mystical body of our blessed Lord and her religious liberty, her freedom to do her God-given job of saving men. Before our blessed Lord and King of all ascended up into heavenly glory, he gave his blessed apostles and all the members of his one true flock a divine mandate, a God-given mandate that is above all the mandates of human governors, lawmakers, and judges. And that divine mandate, that God-given authorization is to go out to all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature and to baptize all in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost. No man, not even a real powerful one, can ever limit in any way whatsoever the church's holy mission. And by the way, only the Roman Catholic Church was given this authorization. Our Lord spoke to the Catholic apostles of the church they alone have the right to preach the Holy Gospel. Only they and their successors were sent. When one attacks the spiritual body of the Catholic Church, one attacks Christ himself. He is the invisible head of Holy Church. 
This HHS mandate, along with other unjust government policies given to us by mere human creatures, is a slap in the face of the Son of God himself. And I freely admit, freely admit that for the most part, things have not reached in any way the troubles that were in Mexico in the 1920s and 30s. But there are ominous signs ominous signs that we should take seriously the potential dangers to the Catholic faith. Let me provide just two examples of persecution against Roman Catholics within the pro-life movement within the U.S. Father Norman Wesleyan, you may have heard of him. Father Norman Wesleyan is an elderly priest. Father Wesleyan is the former head of a pro-life group known as the Lambs of Christ. They peacefully protested for many years in front of abortion clinics. In their protests, the lambs of Christ never said a word. They would actually curl up in front of the doors in a fetal position. They wanted to imitate the child who has no voice and is curled up in its mother's womb. Father Weston has been arrested on numerous occasions and has spent most of his priestly life behind bars for the cause of promoting unborn babies and their life. Just a few years ago, this priest of God was arrested at Notre Dame University for simply praying the Holy Rosary. That's all he was doing, praying the Holy Rosary in protest of the single most pro-abortion president in history, being given a pulpit and an honorary law degree from that institution. It's amazing that a Catholic priest would be jailed for praying the rosary on a Catholic campus. Father Norman Wesson is also a Native American, a retired colonel from the U.S. Air Force. He served with honor and distinction and was highly decorated during the Korean conflict. A few years back, Father Weston was in jail again for peacefully protesting against abortion. The guards insisted that he not eat anything outside of mealtimes. During a day, during one day, a fellow priest came in to see Father Weston, bringing him most holy communion. The guards saw Father Weston receive the sacred host upon his lips. The guards were upset. The guards were upset. The priest had broken the arbitrary rule. So the guards invaded Father Westland's cell and demanded that he spit out what was in his mouth. Of course, Father Westland refused to do such a sacrilegious thing. The guards then proceeded to beat him for his disobedience. You know, it's interesting that the entire time that Muslim terrorists have been held captive down in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. Special meals were flown down to them during their special religious seasons. But here you have a Native American, a decorated war hero, and a Catholic priest being beaten for receiving the Blessed Sacrament. One more example, if I may. In the year 1987, an event occurred in the city of Pensacola, Florida, A young pro-life woman named Joan Andrews entered an abortion clinic. Joan Andrews went into one of those rooms in which there was an abortion machine, an evacuation suction machine. 
That's a machine that kills babies. And she disabled that machine. She was immediately arrested. Because Joan had never been arrested before, she was charged with the misdemeanor. And all she had to do was to admit that what she did was wrong and that abortion was a fundamental human right for all women. Joan, of course, refused to compromise. And as a result, the judge elevated her charge to a full felony and sentenced her to five years in a maximum security prison in Broward County, Florida. Although Joan Andrews had never been charged with a violent crime in her life, she was forced to endure full cavity strip searches on a regular basis. Furthermore, Joan was punished by being put in solitary confinement. But because being put in solitary for more than 30 days was considered cruel and unusual punishment and against the law, Joan would spend 29 days in solitary, then be let out for one day into the general prison population, only to be put back in solitary for another 29 days. This treatment went on for two full years. Eventually, this outrageous treatment of a Roman Catholic, Joan Andrews, became known to the world through a series of articles and newspapers. Today, after having her sentence commuted, Joan Andrews' bell is married. She has a number of children, both her own physical children as well as many adopted children. She runs homes for unwed mothers, helping them to bring their babies to birth. And as for pro-life forces, they help the unborn by giving them so much diapers, formula. But as for Planned Parenthood and the National Abortion Rights League, they have never done one thing for a pregnant woman, never one thing for an unborn child. They've never provided one diaper, ever. Their business is only death. And it's big business. Using public records, I could easily provide you with dozens of other examples of brutal, unjust treatment of pro-life Roman Catholics by the state. Again, we haven't reached the level of persecution as seen in Mexico in the first half of the 20th century, but there are ominous signs. How long will it be? Ponder this. How long will it be, for example, for a Catholic chaplain in the armed services of this country will be ordered by higher-ups to witness and officiate at a homosexual marriage or face sanctions or even a court-martial? It's not that far off. Those leading Egypt today have a sodomitical agenda which they wish to impose upon the citizenry And considering that three states in this last election voted for a referendum to recognize this abomination, there doesn't seem to be that much resistance. And perhaps we have not seen real hardship in trial because most of us Catholics have not resisted the evil that surrounds us. You see, most of us are stuck in Egypt And Egypt is stuck in us. In fact, most of us actually voted for Pharaoh. We're building his cities and supporting his policies. But if we do resist, 
If we begin an exodus towards the Red Sea, if we start climbing Mount Sinai with Moses and proclaim the Ten Commandments as the law of this land, you'll see persecution then. It's going to start small. Maybe Pharaoh will no longer supply straw for our bricks, thus forcing us to gather for ourselves. The HHS mandate may force Catholic institutes to drop insurance coverage for employees. Perhaps the IRS in the future may knock on the doors of various chanceries informing bishops and their helpers that despite the free exercise clause in the Constitution, it's time to pay up. And for those priests who actually do stand up for the Ten Commandments like Moses of old, Perhaps soon they'll be charged with hate speech. How long will it be before various Catholic hospitals, charitable agencies, and educational institutions fall completely under secular authority? Egypt is expanding. And where can we find refuge and find protection? One of my favorite novels... It's called Eclipse of the Sun. It's written by a Canadian author, Michael O'Brien. It's worth a read. Although a fictional tale, Eclipse of the Sun, has a ring of truth about it which is undeniable. Eclipse of the Sun is about a small family and a priest living in the midst of a totalitarian state. The father of the family, a newspaper editor, is arrested by the Office of Internal Security for daring to speak the truth. The children and the priests who have witnessed various atrocities by the government are forced to flee into the northern interior of British Columbia. And after a long chase, the priest is brutally martyred by government officials while the others find refuge to ride out the storm. You know, I'm only 48 years old, but even in my life, I have seen my country drastically change. There's no longer a basic moral consensus amongst fellow Americans. Many leaders today speak about the importance of civility during a time of moral diversity. But how can there be civility between us and them when they support the most uncivilized behaviors imaginable? Since we are in a spiritual Egypt with all of its idolatries and evils, many people want to flee. Flee to some distant place on the map for a place of natural refuge. I've heard some people want to move to Malta perhaps the last Catholic country on earth. Some want to build a little Catholic enclave, an earthly oasis complete with Catholic culture and morality. Others want to go off the grid and somehow hide from the authorities, building underground shelters filled with years of food. But these places of natural refuge are not ultimately the answer. I could give you a whole list of Catholic communities that have failed to build Eden on earth. The tentacles of Egypt have a far reach. 
And for those who want to go off the grid and hide somewhere, even underground, Pharaoh has a lot of technology. He's got satellites, drones, even black helicopters. As Catholics, we don't want so much a place of natural refuge, but rather a location that will provide supernatural refuge and protection. We want a place like Noah's Ark that will save us and our families, helping us to rise above the flood of moral corruption. We want to find that spiritual cave in which to dwell, which is present within the rock. Well, this heavenly dwelling place is available to all Catholics and to all mankind for that matter. Supernatural refuge is found in the most sacred heart of Jesus Christ, who is the rock of ages. Almost 2,000 years ago, on a Friday that we call good, our blessed Savior died upon the holy wood of the cross. A final insult was given to his sacred body a little past 3 p.m., when his holy side and his sacred heart was brutally pierced by a Roman centurion named Longinus, who sought to determine whether he was actually dead. This piercing of Christ's heart, however, brought about wondrous things. Not only did water and blood flow out from his most sacred side, giving us, through the church, the fountain of sacramental life, but a gate was opened up for us in that same heart. A gate of life opened for us. An entranceway to walk has been established in the heart of Jesus since that day. Because he was wounded, we now have a passageway that leads to supernatural refuge and protection. We now got a cave. A cave in which to dwell during these dark times. And that cave is the rock that is Christ. We have much more than Noah's Ark here. The doorway into the heart of Christ will save not only Noah's family and two of every kind, the whole of this living and beating Ark is open wide to take in all of humanity, all of creation. And this heart, in this heart, you will find supernatural refuge and protection free from all external troubles ultimately. You will find love within his heart, devotion within his heart, virtues in abundance within the chambers of his heart, as well as true contrition for our sins. And ultimately, you will find salvation itself. Persecution may well come, but now we know where to go. We have supernatural powers. They don't. St. Augustine, and I'll end with this. St. Augustine, the great church father, put it this way. And now let all come who love paradise, a place of peace and security, a perpetual happiness, a place where we will fear no barbarian, We will endure no adversary. We will suffer no enemy. Come all, enter all, 
there is a way by which you may enter because the side of Christ is open for you. Strive, says the Lord, to enter by the narrow gate. What is more narrow, St. Augustine states, than the hole which one of those soldiers opened by striking the side of the crucified one. And yet through this narrow hole, almost the whole world can enter. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.